Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Max and TV. I'm your host, Max Lannisman. You've got a great show for you tonight. We have Greg Friedman, Managing Principal and CEO of Peachtree Hotel Group, one of the elite hotel groups in America right now. They currently manage 121 hotel assets, which total 14,900 rooms. Uh, figuring if you have stayed in a Hampton Inn once in your life, the chances are you might have stayed in one of their, their Hampton Inns, among others. Um, he successfully led Peachtree Hotel Group in more than $3.5 billion in hotel acquisitions, investments, and development since co-founding the company back in 2007-2008. Peachtree Hotel Group operates, develops, and invests in premium branded select and limited service and extended stay hotel assets under the Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, Choice, and Intercontinental Hotels Group flags. Uh, Greg has been featured on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Hotel News Now, Lodging Magazine, and now Max and TV. If you guys do like the show, please remember to like and subscribe, and hope you guys enjoy. All right, so I have here Greg Friedman. I'm going to say Greg freaking Friedman, because I actually looked on Google. I typed in Greg Friedman. There were 16,900,000 results, but I only care about one Greg Friedman, and he's on my show today, CEO, founder of Petri Hotel Group, Greg Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Max, for having me. So I appreciate the opportunity to join your show today. Absolutely, absolutely. I haven't slept in a week and a half. I'm not gonna lie. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> right. So, um, you gotta tell me. Um, I see, uh, I mean, I come across a lot of hotel executives and yours seems to be very different. You don't only just own your own hotels, not only manage your hotels, you fund other hotels. I think you're, are you like, is it not even me to say that you're like the only one-stop shop for everything essentially? Yeah. So we're probably one of the few, if only um, companies that, you know, invest up and down the capital stack. So we invest, you know, both on the equity side as well as the debt side for hotels. And, you know, we own different companies that, you know, service the different investments we make in the hotel space. So we do own a hotel property management company. Um, we own a development company and we own a lending platform called Stonehill that's you know, actively financing other hotel groups that are you know, acquiring, developing hotels. And then we um, own an asset management company as well. So we're you know, vertically integrated and, and uh, we are, you know, without question, we're probably a little bit different than the typical you know, company in our industry because um, most companies are more focused on either the development side or the ownership side or maybe just the operation side. It's very few that does everything like, like we do internally. Right. So from a lot of the things that I've read about you guys, which I, I mean, before every, everything happened with all Corona and everything, you're, you know, you can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but your hotel group is, I think one of its core competencies is to run as lean as possible. I believe you're actually quoted as saying that, like, you don't wait for disasters to happen before you like actually look into every little, cause I, 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 I speak to other people and they're like, yeah, we had no idea this is what this cost. And because of Corona, we're going to have to cut that. Like, they don't even pay attention. You guys, I feel like, pay attention to everything, especially talking to Desai, Jatin. Right. I mean, he knows his stuff. Let's put it yeah, no, yeah Jatin definitely, definitely knows his stuff. But we're always, you know, that's one thing we do pride ourselves on is we're constantly um, trying to control expenses. You know, so the, the hotel business it's all about being able to drive revenue. So the revenue management side of the business is extremely critical, but more importantly, you know, once you're getting those revenues, you want to make sure you're, um, you know, watching and controlling all the expenses, you know, associated with, with each hotel. So we do spend a lot of time trying to manage, 
and you know make sure we're not overspending as it relates to you know staffing to you know supply costs you know and all the different components because we want to you know ultimately be able to drive you know good returns on the the capital we're investing into these hotels right i actually uh, i actually heard sloan dean uh ceo of remington he actually mentioned that with all this pandemic stuff happening he says a lot of managers and management companies you know typically smaller are going to be wiped off the face of the map and the bigger guys are going to actually benefit because they've been I don't like to accuse anybody, but um, the bigger ones I've been paying attention more to the owners is cash more than general. And do you feel like that's true that this is actually going to be beneficial to you guys? Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I think across our industry, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation, you know, given, you know, this, unfortunately, given this pandemic, it's going to create a situation where a lot of the smaller, you know, owners just, they don't have enough liquidity. You know, to make it to the other side of this pandemic. And in some cases, you're going to see on the operational side, you're going to see a lot of these hotel property management companies, you know, like Sloan runs a you know, relatively large hotel property management company, and they're going to benefit from being able to potentially, you know, buy other hotel property management companies or, or gain other hotel management contracts, just given some of these smaller companies are just not going to be as, you know, financially viable to continue to survive at these low, you know, at these low levels from a revenue perspective. So that's going to drive a lot of this consolidation. And I think it's going to happen even on the ownership side as well. You're going to see a lot of properties, you know, probably trade towards the end of this year, beginning of, you know, first half of next year, I expect, you know, you're going to start seeing a lot of, you know, asset trades where, you know, ownership groups are going to be forced to sell assets, just given how disruptive, you know, COVID-19 has been to our industry. Right. Um, one thing you actually might not know about me, I'll actually tell you two things. Um, I started out my career actually in the note business. We used to buy non-performing notes. And number two, I actually worked in a hotel before. Um, oh, really? I, when I did, um, at the time, I, I actually, it was in the summer, I honestly didn't need a, I, I wasn't working, I was bored. And a couple of things I never had the experience of doing was to wait tables. I was never a waiter. And I always wanted to work in a hotel. So what did I do? I saw there was a sign outside of the hotel. I'll tell you later privately who, where it was or who it was. Right. Um, but said, we're hiring. So I'm like, great. I walked inside, asked the guy behind the desk. I'm like, says, you guys are hiring. Is that true? He's like, yeah. He's like, what are you looking for? I'm like, whatever pays the most, you know? Right. <laughs> so anyways, I, I was only there a month. So, but when I was there, I knew that I want to get as much as possible out of this experience as possible. I wanted to know everything about everything. And so I knew one day it's going to benefit me one way or another. And it turns out it has. Um, so one, one thing that's very interesting, actually, that the way you started Peachtree was through, I, I think, the 08 crisis, right? Like everything, yep. was, like, everything was a fire sale. And you, you and um, how do you pronounce his name? Mattel Patel? Yeah, Mattel. So yeah, Mattel tell um so in Matul or i call him his nickname is mikey to me so mikey, Matul, okay, that's a lot easier. yeah so we, we've been friends for over 20 years now oh, wow. um so it's uh so we've known each other for at least 21 years now but uh so you know Matul and i both you know started peace tree going back about 13 years ago so going back in 2007 so it was right before the uh the last downturn so it was actually may of 2007 we went out and bought a couple of hotels together and that's what um, started, you know, Peachtree Hotel Group. And uh, so we picked, you know, the absolute right timing, 
you know, for the last time period, because that was the peak of the last cycle. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we, um, you know, continue to, you know, buy hotels and we were able to benefit from the last downturn because in 2000, you know, going back to 2009, 2010, 11, and 12, we bought a lot of, you know, non-performing notes. So we were, you know, very big on the, the debt buying side. Um, so we bought, you know, over, you know, 40, you know, first mortgage loans secured wow. by different hotel assets. Really? We bought really? about, a, you know, a dozen non-hotel loans as well. Um, so we've, we've always been very, you know, very much focused on trying to buy distressed assets and buying you know, distressed debt, especially. And, you know, just my background before starting Peachtree, I spent, you know, 10 years in banking where I specialized in hotels. So I just, I've always had a high comfort level with, you know, with buying debt. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I know, I know people that, that started really today, they're really big businesses because they started at the moment. Um, with with non-performing, do you feel like that really propelled you to where you are today, like the note buying and everything? Because that everything was like pennies, you know. Yeah, I think you know financially, it definitely. I mean, we we did extremely well with the the notes that we bought, you know, back in the last downturn. Um, we've done you know extremely well in the hotels that we acquired as well. So you know, along that time, you know, we continued to buy hotel properties. We even developed hotel properties from the ground up that we've done you know extremely well with on those investments. And so I think it's, um, it, but I do think the note buying side was a, it was a big driver that allowed us um, to, you know, to get into more assets because we had that, you know, comfort level and had that ability and knowledge on how to, because buying notes is totally different than buying real estate. Cause there's a lot oh, yeah. to it. Cause you're not, you know, when you buy that debt piece, you're really, um, you're not in the situation where you're going to own the property. You're going to have to, you know, a lot of cases, like most 90% of the loans we bought in the last downturn, you know, again, these were all non-performing notes, but we were able to go in, restructure, keep the borrower in place. So we didn't even go through the foreclosure process. We could have, um, we ended up just restructuring, keeping the borrower in place. And we were able to create a win-win situation where we got paid off, you know, through the borrower. And we, you know, it was accretive to our, you know, investment into that asset. Wow, that's actually to say that like, that's very nice of you. Um, the right. the the company that I was working for, like their whole thing was foreclosure. Like my boss, like if he, the second he heard a lawsuit, like he smiled. It's kind of weird. Like he he actually told this to me. Like he just loved he loved litigation, all that stuff. I don't know why I'm I'm always surrounded by that stuff. It's really annoying. But what I, <laughs> but, but which company was that? Or can you oh, tell F, me? FIA Capital Partners. Okay, they're, they're actually. They're actually very big in New York. They're very prevalent in New York. If there was a deal anywhere between, you know, a million and a hundred million in New York, uh, I'm sh his name is there. Like it, it just gotcha. That's um yeah. We once had like a we once had like a meeting or something. Uh, we were meeting with somebody else, um, and he ended up starting to work for the guy's name is David Goldwasser is the principal. Um, and I asked him like, how do you guys know? He's like, well, I'm really good at research, and I was research researching all these non-performing notes and I keep seeing the same name all the time. David Goldwasser, David Goldwasser, David Goldwasser. Right. Guy. And that's how that's how kind of that's how it kind of happened. But yeah, the FIA FIA Capital Partners. Um so that was that was an experience for itself. Um so when you started this company again it was on a on a downturn and with this it was actually very interesting. Um I'm not gonna call you a profit or anything. But I believe you mentioned in, I think, April of 2019 that you're like, we're at the top of the cycle. It starts to not leverage as much. We're going to lower our leverage. We're going to lower our debt load, et cetera, et cetera. 
I mean, you didn't know, like, nobody knew coronavirus, but it's almost like you were setting up almost that something bad was going to happen. Like, did you know something you didn't know? Or like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that there was gonna be a pandemic. It just it was one of those where economically we felt, you know, the market felt a little bit, you know, overheated. And so it was one of those situations where we, we saw some choppiness just in the performance of the hotels that we owned back in 2019. And even in 2018, and felt the market was starting to get a little bit frothy just on you know, how things were getting, you know, valued and so forth. And so we started deleveraging and Taking you know taking on less debt and paying down debt, so that we'd be in a you know good position and shoring up liquidity as well, which um, you know we've done a lot of that recently. You know even after the pandemic hit, just to be in a position to be able to weather the storm. Right, because uh, I mean you were doing like you were during I don't know how much construction you're doing. I, I know that you were during construction, and you were you're obviously in a, like a growth stage. Like I don't know if you actually looked at this, but I did. I actually looked at the numbers. I got it from, you know, hotel, I think it's a, what's it called? I forget what it's called. Um, one of the big hotel magazines, I don't know, whatever it is, not watching the other one. I think hotelbusiness.com or something. They do like yeah. the rankings for, so this was like the end of 2018 earnings. Um, so you guys were ranked 50, 55. I honestly think, um, I don't think that's accurate. I think you guys are a lot higher because it's, you know, from a revenue perspective, it's at 155 million. Um, just, I'm not going to say it here, but you know, from what Jatine told me just with your hotels, which is 50, it was whatever. So you guys managed 70. So I would expect that number to be hot. No, is, is that like a fair? Yeah. So we, you know, we have our 50 plus that we, you know, that we own and operate. And then we've got another 70, you know, close to 75 assets where we don't operate those assets. So, you know, we're just either, you know, we're in investing those assets as like a preferred equity investment. In some cases we did JV equity where there's another group operating some of those assets. But in a lot of the cases, we're just like a first mortgage lender on those properties. So we have the first mortgage note. And, uh, and so we're not responsible for the operation side. We're just clipping, you know, effectively we're just clipping a coupon, um, you know, each month when they make their mortgage payment. So one, one thing I really like about you, which, um, you, you take it, you take it, you take what the market gives you, right? The market yep. says, don't buy hotels now, you don't buy hotels, but you're lending. You know, when it says buy hotels, you're in the position to buy hotels. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, it's, um, something yeah, that, that's, I don't see that often, you know, you can literally do whatever you want, essentially. Yeah. You're giving away our secret sauce. That's, uh, uh, I don't, this <laughs> that's why we, this is what, yeah, I don't. Um, That's why we like what we do. So it, literally we can, you know, play up and down the capital stack and in this kind of environment, like right now, you know, it's a, uh, it's a tough environment to buy hotels just given there's a huge disconnect in pricing and there's not a lot of trades happening, but we can focus on lending. We can focus on buying debt, you know, instead of buying, trying to buy hotel properties. And we have that ability just given the fact that we have that, you know, expertise internally to be able to do it. And then, uh, and then, you know, the market's going to flip at some point, you know, hopefully towards the end of this year where we can start buying a lot more on the real estate side. And at some point in the future, it's going to probably make more sense to start developing hotels like it did back in you know, 2016, you know, 17, and 18. It just made more sense to develop versus acquiring as much. There wasn't as much to acquire. Right. Uh, you were mentioning like the hotel prices were insane. And so you're like, screw everything. I'm just going to build it myself. I'll buy some land. Find a good right. spot and, and build on it cheaper. It just it I, I was seeing these prices too. It's insane. It's it's unreal. It's like a hotel that like nets two hundred thousand is selling it for thirty million. Like 
I don't understand. Like, you know, um, yep. um, so, so I actually wanted to read you this stat. I don't know if you actually got a chance to see it. So I was, I was showing you the, the top, uh, hotel management companies here that are ranked. So I don't care about what you're doing now. I want to see the growth. You came out to be top five in terms of revenue, in terms of growth revenue year over year from 17 to 18, you were ranked fifth out of 78. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah, you that were is insane. I didn't realize that actually. Growth, revenue. Like, I don't know if anybody else sees it. I see it. I feel like I'm talking to a potential top 10, 15 hotel management company, and that's just in the near future. I mean, I mean, uh, Ambridge Hot, they do 5 billion. That, that, that's insane. But it might be right. hard to catch them really quick. But I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. Numbers don't lie. You know, I, you guys are a little more aggressive, maybe. I don't know. Um, but you guys are going like this, like straight up. Some people are going like this. Some people are going like, you guys are going like shot up. So bra number one, bravo to you guys. Yeah, I, thank what, you. What, are you what, what are you doing that's like, that's, you know, powering this growth, you know? Yeah, it's more, I mean, like you said before, it's more sort of taking what the market gives you. So, I mean, we're constantly, I mean, we're opportunistic. So we're always looking for new opportunities on the investment side. And we, you know, had a really, because again, we, we don't do a lot of third-party management where we operate hotels for other ownership groups. We're operating hotels for the assets that we own internally. So it's, uh, it's not us growing through, you know, acquisitions of management contracts. It's us growing through either developing hotels from the ground up that are opening or, um, you know, us acquiring assets or even operating more effectively the assets that we have, you know, internally. And uh, so it's, you know, it's just been, you know, we were fortunate, you know, over the last several years, um, like 2017, 18, we were able to grow and add, you know, more real estate assets to our portfolio. And, and uh, it's something that we feel like over the next three to five years, you know, we should be in a position to probably, you know, even double our company from where we are today. So. I think it'll take I mean, that's a bold statement, but I feel like to double what might be a little easy for you. I, I want to say that it sounds ridiculous, you know, to say like anything's easy, nothing's easy. But uh, right. yeah, but I mean, we have we have a solution for pretty much for you know for whatever we're trying to do from an investment perspective. But it's also, um, I mean, we've got a deep team internally, right? Um, so right. we have you know we have individuals and team members that can pretty much execute wherever we need to execute. So it's. Um, but we are opportunistic. So as we do grow, the one thing, you know, about us is traditionally we're not, you know, when we buy an asset on the real estate side, we're not buying for the next 20 or 30 years. We're, we're usually investing for the next, you know, three to seven years. So at some point we're going to look to sell these assets and we're always selling assets. Um, unfortunately, over the next 12 to 18 months, we're probably not selling a lot of hotels just given the reset of that, you know, what's happened on the value side. Yeah, um, and yeah. how values have just gotten totally disrupted based on COVID. But, you know, there is going to be a huge buying opportunity that's going to help drive the growth on the, the real estate side, as well as even on the debt side. So. Right. I mean, the thing is, is that it's not like you haven't sold, like you've sold, like if you own 50 hotels now, you've sold 50 hotels also. Yep. So it's not like you've not, not done it before. And like that won't drive, like you're still growing. And um, that's, that's amazing. Um, one thing I was going to, one thing I was going to say, was is that so you talked about the payment protection program stuff you know and yep. i mean you got something great but like it's one tenth of what you need like everybody got like one tenth of what you need um right if you were sitting if you were sitting in congress like you actually had the power nobody debates what you say 
what what would like on a realistic perspective? I don't know if you can just they are just printing cash, but like how would you really like realistically do it to make sense to everybody? Yeah. So I mean, I think from a standpoint of just the payroll protection program, I think one mistake they made is they just gave it pretty much to every business, right? Um, as long as they had certain qualifications, but pretty much most you know most small businesses qualified for it. You know, if they had disruption, you know, based on COVID or had no disruption. They still received, you know, these uh, forgivable, you know, potentially forgivable loans, depending on what was spent on. Harvard got ten million dollars. Harvard needed for you know a forty right. million dollar uh, trust or whatever it is. Oh, come on, it's like insane. Yeah, and so money was sort of just thrown around to a certain degree. There was not a lot of discipline, and you know, although it was a great program, you know, very appreciative of what you know, um, you know, Congress and you know what the president did for us. I think it's something that helped, you know, that liquidity, it just helps the system and helps the recovery. But with it all being said, if I had the, you know, the ability to, to sort of set the program and, you know, hopefully there'll be a round two of, uh, of the payroll protection program, especially for a lot of, you know, my good friends in the hospitality business because they need it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think the first step would have been to look at businesses that were truly disrupted based on COVID because I had a lot of friends who received again the, the funding and their business was actually thriving. Um, like for instance, I had a good friend in the healthcare industry that, you know, his business is, you know, is up compared to, you know, 2019 and, right. uh, he to, you know, benefit from the program. So I think, you know, that's probably step one is making sure businesses were truly disrupted and had at least, you know, some percentage of revenue drop. And, you know, maybe it's a minimum of 25%. I think if you look at round two, they're proposing that it's going to be more targeted towards businesses with at least, I think, 50% disruption in revenues, depending, you know, assuming that legislation gets passed. Um, but it's, uh, you know, so I think that's a step in the right direction. I think the, um, I think some of the other components is instead of we've thrown so much money towards um, the unemployment insurance, which I do agree, you know, it's not, um, we should do something to try to help, you know, protect everyone. But I think it, should be done through these. I mean, again, we're giving these payroll protection dollars so that, you know, companies like myself go back and hire all their, um, you know, employees. And you're almost better off giving us the dollars you know, that we're spending elsewhere and letting us use those dollars to, to be able to, you know, staff back up so that we eliminate a lot of this unemployment. Because one of the challenges we are having, you know, across our industry today is, is actually getting people to come back and work in a lot of cases they can make more money on unemployment than what they're making, you know, working with us. So I do think, you know, that's another issue that needs to get resolved over the next, um, you know, over the next month or whatever the case is. But it is something that I think they're making the right decisions, you know, reducing the unemployment insurance. I know it's been pushed back, but there needs to be some type of motivation to get employees that, you know, that have an opportunity for a job to actually come back and work. And uh, I think, you know, candidly, they need to try to come up with more, again, more targeted programs outside of PPP to try to help, you know, bridge the gap. Because, you know, ultimately, unlike some of the past downturns, like, you know, 2008, um, you know, the great financial crisis, you know, that was something that, you know, everyone on the business side, you know, could be, you know, hold some level of responsibility. Everyone sort of knew what they were getting themselves into versus today, no one expected, you know, a pandemic. And, you know, when there's, you know, when government has mandated these lockdowns and has actually, you know, just totally destroyed, you know, the, the ability for people to travel and stay at hotels, 
you know, there needs to be some level of, um, you know, some level of liquidity that's, you know, in the form of grants or tax credits or something to help offset those losses. Because, you know, someone that owns a hotel, they didn't, you know, again, they didn't create this and they can't, you know, manufacture demand when no one's, you know, in most cases, most businesses can't travel today because there's a restriction in most corporations, given the state of, you know, state of emergency, the national state of emergency that exists because of COVID, you know, it's just totally disrupted travel. So I think that's some of the stuff that, you know, if I had the pen, I would try to figure out a way to, you know, give more, you know, incentives towards um, hospitality, you know, ownership groups and hospitality operators and so forth. Well, I think hospitality ownership groups got hit hard. It's like even worse than restaurants. Like it was, I mean, it's no question hospitality is the worst, the worst hit, right? I mean, I think yep. probably, it was, yeah, we're, um, the, yeah, we're definitely the tip of the sword. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you met, you mentioned your friend in healthcare. I mean, it's very fascinating to me. I understand obviously how my brother works for a very, very large nursing home called Centers Healthcare. They I think operate probably 50, something like that. They're, they're one of the bigger ones. Um, so they, they obviously got a lot more business, quote unquote, but in terms of like bottom line profit, I think they're losing because, you know, let's say a, a person typically would make, you know, let's say a, someone would typically make, let's say $15 an hour, right? Um, during COVID, it's more like 40 an hour, you know, cause they would like jack up the prices. So it, your friend is making, like actually making money or like, it just, you know, like how does yeah, that So he's, he's in the medical supply business. So he actually was selling, you know, so he's like selling masks and stuff like that. So his business is thriving, you know, because everybody's trying to figure out how to buy more masks and sanitizing type equipment and so forth. And uh, so if you're in the right, you know, again, if you're in the right industry, some, you know, some businesses, it's no different than the public stock market. You look at what's happening there today and you look at Amazon. I mean, it's totally thriving. I mean, it, yeah. It's up huge compared to where it was pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my neck of the woods stock market. My dad's been doing it for 41 years. He unfortunately or fortunately gave it to me. I've got the bug. I love it. I, I invest in the stock market. Um, uh, yeah, I own Amazon. Um, yeah. And um, I, I feel like, tell me if this is true. I feel like, you know, like I've been in real estate, I've been on the real estate side. I've obviously seen stock market side. I feel like you're one or the other. I feel like you're not both. Like, I feel like it's very rare for someone to be a real estate guy and a stock guy. I feel like it just doesn't exist. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, I think a lot of people that invest in real estate, they don't like the volatility of the public markets. So they don't invest in the public markets. I invest, you know, I do invest in the public markets. I invest obviously heavily into real estate, invest a lot into debt and things like that. So it's, uh, so I invest on, you know, all sides, but it's, um, but it, it is one of those things. Most, I think most real estate investors are, low volatility type individuals and hence they don't like that, you know, just that constant movement. Right. And right. it's uh, and that's what sort of keeps them away from the public markets and, and then vice versa. I know a lot of people that just invest in the public markets because they want to have that ability to have, you know, liquidity at any moment. Right. Right. And so they want to be able to liquidate their investments and you know move on. But right. it's uh, it's totally two different types of investment, you know, philosophies and theories and so forth. I'm glad you're able to kind of confirm that because um, I've always had that thought, but uh, as somebody like yourself, uh, just for confirmations, feels kind of good. Right. I, I, I have felt, yeah, I have felt like it's one or the other. Um, so back to, back to, so you, you run four different businesses. You, I feel like you've mentioned before, I believe, 
um, that you don't in, you don't like um, intertwine Stonehill and your own financing for your own stuff, for your own hotels. Um, I'm like, what exactly is like the, the conflict of interest? For example, um, Microsoft, there's a lot of rumors that Microsoft is going to buy TikTok, right? Yep. Um, everyone, everyone thinks that it's really for the, the social, um, the social network, whatever. A lot of, uh, in industry experts are saying it's not about that at all. They don't care about that. They care about, they're trying to compete with Amazon web services. And this is a, if they were to buy TikTok, TikTok would automatically become their number one customer. Um, so it's to prove to everyone else that they they're, I think Microsoft Azure or something that they can yep. handle such a large customer and you don't have to just go to AWS. Number one, I don't understand why Microsoft has to prove anything to anybody. They're freaking right. Microsoft. Um, I mean, you had me at the door, um, but they essentially, they, they're buying TikTok and then TikTok will be a customer of Microsoft. So yep. in this sense, like Stonehill, like, like give me a little bit of a background of that. Why you think it's like a, it's, I don't know. Conflict it's a conflict. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a great question. So it's, it's one of those situations where we can't, you know, if we're making a loan, um, usually when we make these loans, we partner, you know, on the Stonehill side, you know, we usually will originate a first mortgage loan and it'll be a, you know, 20 million, $30 million first mortgage loan. And we'll retain the, the B tranche of that first mortgage loan. And we'll syndicate out the A tranche to like a, you know, regional bank or a community bank or a life company or so forth but we're holding the B tranche. And so we're in that, you know, subordinate piece, we control the loan, um, but it's, it just becomes a conflict of interest for the equity in the project itself and the borrower, because it's not like we're going to go foreclose on ourselves. Right. So it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes one of those issues where it just becomes really tough to be a, a lender to yourself where you're the equity. And hence we, we just don't finance ourselves on the projects um, that we're, you know, that, that we're developing or acquiring. We always use, um, you know, regional banks, community banks, some of the national banks, you know, finance us on the, you know, on the equity investments that we make. Right. It's actually very interesting. I'm, I understand your grandfather runs PMC Capital, no? Yeah. But so my grandfather actually started PMC Capital. He's uh, unfortunately passed away, like going back, you know, Sorry, yeah. 12 years. Yeah. No worries. He was, he was, uh, he passed away about 13 years ago. So he was, he was, I was very close with him, but he, um, he was, um, you know, originally started PMC capital back in the, um, actually originally it was called ProMed capital. Um, so he started back in the late seventies, early eighties, and, uh, he had received a SBA license. So he got one of the non-bank SBA licenses and started out financing, um, medical practices because he was an optometrist by trade, although he did own some hotel properties. Um, so he was, uh, he was a hotelier as well as an optometrist, which made for a sort of a strange mix. But um, he, you know, he owned, you know, again, he owned all these optometry practices as well as you know, hotel properties. He owned movie theaters. He owned all sorts of different you know, businesses. Wow. But he ended up, um, you know, growing ProMed Capital to a point where he sort of outgrew the ability to keep on financing these medical practices. So he moved into financing hotels. And renamed the company in the you know mid '80s, um, changed it from ProMed Capital to PMC Capital, and uh, and then they you know continued to grow the company and ended up um, you know my uncles and my mom actually worked in the business for many years and they ended up you know selling the, the business off to another company called CIM ended up buying. Well, um, supposedly um, your grandfather had a lot to do with helping Asian Americans get into the hotel business. 
Um, uh, it sounds like, honestly, if it wasn't for him, like Asian Americans would not be only hotel. I don't know. Is that, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say it, it was because of him that it happened. I think he was, uh, he helped, I would say, you know, expedite because he was providing a lot of the capital, you know, early on, you know, through these different SBA programs, he was financing a lot of the original hotels that a lot of, you know, Asian Americans as they, you know, came into the industry because back in the eighties, the there wasn't a lot of, there was like very little debt capital available for hotel, you know, for hotel acquisition financing. And they financed mostly these, you know, limited service type hotels. And, uh, and so he was a big, you know, source of capital for it. So I don't, I wouldn't say that they wouldn't have gotten there because they were already, you know, going in that direction. You know, the Asian American community was already very active in the hotel space, but they, he helped, you know, help sort of expedite, you know, that process. It was like more hotels. It was like them specifically, they had a hard time getting loans or in general, like it's just very difficult. It was, it was very difficult back in that time period for, um, you know, for, for anyone, you know, back in the eighties, but more importantly, um, even the Asian American community, I think it was, um, you know, they, you know, they didn't have as many deep, you know, banking relationships, you know, with the different, you know, they didn't have that because, you know, most banks are really, especially back in the eighties, they were very relationship driven, no differently than today where you need to have deposits. In a lot of cases, these community banks that were financing hotels back then, it was, uh, you know, you had to have a you know, 20 year history with them. And um, a lot of, you know, the Asian Americans coming over, they were, you know, immigrating over to the U.S. and didn't have the relationships or the history. And PMC was, uh, you know, w- was willing to you know, establish lending relationships without having, you know, years and years of, you know, personal, you know, depository type relationships and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, I did see an article from a lodging magazine. It was talking about you growing up. You apparently were doing a hotel spreadsheets when you were like seven years old or something. Right. Um, I don't know if I was doing spreadsheets, but back then we didn't have the, uh, I mean, I, I guess we had computers, but it wasn't as right. robust as it is today. I, I think this is the funniest thing. Like, yeah, you were getting into the hotel business even as a kid grew up. It seems like you were kind of like leading towards the hotel business. And, but you have a, you have a bachelor's degree from University of Texas in biology. Um, right. I have no idea what happened. What happened there? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. So I, I was going to go to medical school and then oh. ended up pivoting and deciding, you know, towards my, you know, my junior year of college, ended up deciding that I didn't want to go to medical school and was sort of at a point where, you know, I was getting sort of burned out on, on science and the thought of going to medical school. So I ended up um, pivoting and moving towards, you know, looking for um, something in business. And fortunately, my senior year, I was able to, you know, find an opportunity in banking where I went to go work for, um, you know, GMAC Commercial Mortgage and, you know, focused on financing hotels with them, you know, straight out of school. So had that opportunity and, and took it and was one of those things where, you know, I was around it personally in the, the family business growing up and then had the ability professionally to go work you know, outside the family business and the rest, you know, it ended up creating my own path. So it was uh, somewhat, it was, uh, it was almost dumb luck. You could call it how it all came about. It's a, well, oh, it's luck, but what, what was it like when you actually went off on your own? Like, did you feel like, like it, it, everything just was kind of flowing in that direction? Like you always wanted to do it or like, I see an opportunity. I'm just going to risk it all here and just kind of wing it. Like how, how, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, back then I was so, you know, it was one of those where I wanted to, 
you know, again, when you're younger, a lot of times you're probably more, you know, willing to take on risks. And so it was one of those where, I, you know, I saw the opportunity and was just willing to, to gravitate and, you know, and wanted to do something outside of science, biology. So it was, uh, I probably would have done anything at that time. And I was looking at a couple other opportunities back then when I was coming out of college, but I felt like this was the best fit. And uh, just especially, especially just growing up around the business. Um, I felt like it was just a, a really good fit and it's worked out. Obviously it worked out to be a really, you know, really smart decision. Yeah. Smart decision. Exactly. Wait, what were those other opportunities? Like, um, like, could you, like, could you have worked at SeaWorld, become a biologist or something like that? Or like what, yeah. something like someone saying? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was more going in the pharmaceutical side and things gotcha. like that you could have done if you didn't go to medical school. So Got you. You have a heart, so uh, you can't go into the pharmaceutical, you know, I understand. Right. I, I, yeah, I'm just messing. Um, so one of the, so you obviously build your own hotels, you know, you've gotten more into it. I, I've actually noticed um, you've been, you've been hiring to build up more of your third party. Um, is that, is that true? Like you're just trying to keep building it up and, you know, hiring and keep growing that? Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're hiring, we're constantly, like within our property management company, we've hired, you know, a decent number of individuals recently just to help continue to make sure we have the appropriate coverage across our portfolio. So we didn't really, you know, across our property management company, we really didn't furlough off, um, you know, many employees at all um, across the, you know, the corporate side of the business, you know, at the property level, unfortunately, we were forced to you know, furlough or cut back hours. For a lot of the employees at the property level, just given there wasn't enough business, but at the um, corporate level, you know, we were, you know, we've taken the approach that we want to make sure as business returns, you know, we have a, you know, a team that's in place on the corporate side where we're ready to really take advantage of the opportunities to drive more business into our hotels. And we've made some strategic um, hires and we've made some strategic decisions on bringing on more team members just to be in position to to really benefit as we the other side of you know the COVID impact right like a hospital on the top of the list in terms of like job turnover or things like that and for good reason it's a very difficult business um i feel like your your company is more of like a more tight-knit like homey type of feel that people kind of last longer um how, how do you kind of keep people there and you know essentially um lower that kind of turnover and you know just make it a good place to work essentially yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, it's a couple of different factors that we try to focus on. You know, one is, um, you know, we treat our team members, you know, like family because it's, you know, it's one of those that we spend more time together, you know, as a, you know, as a team here at the office than we do, you know, with a lot of our true family members. And so we really spend a lot of time, you know, trying to, you know, make sure we have more of a, you know, family type culture here, as well as, you know, some of the other factors is just having open, you know, communication and trying to be as transparent as possible to across, you know, when things are happening, especially, you know, going through this type of situation with the pandemic, you know, we're constantly communicating with the team, giving updates on what's happening corporately, you know, what's happening, you know, within the industry, um, you know, what our, you know, investment strategy is, you know, what's happening financially at the corporate level. We just want to be as transparent and allow, you know, questions that team members have, you know, are, you know, like, for instance, my door is always open. So it's, um, you know, if anyone has concerns or questions, I think across our organization, everyone feels like they can go to anyone on our senior management team, as well as, you know, any of the team members and have, you know, and talk about, you know, whatever issues or concerns that they have. So I think it's 
creating that type of environment where, you know, everyone's, you know, very comfortable. Everyone, you know, feels like, you know, they've got support. They have the resources to be successful at their jobs. It's really creating that, those kind of factors to, you know, minimize the turnover. And that's why we believe we've been successful at minimizing the corporate turnover. Unfortunately, at the property level, you know, we all experience, you know, within our industry, you do experience a fair amount of, and, and you know, from your, I guess, from your one month, was it? On the yeah, hospitality, no, yeah, yeah. the it's, so you probably saw it firsthand. You just you deal yeah, with yeah. a lot of turnover at the property level, and that's that is a challenge that's going to probably exist uh, no matter you know no matter what you do to a certain degree. But there's you know different things that you can try to do in order to build that loyalty and try to you know build um, some level of consistency on the employment side or the team member side at the different properties, but it, it is it's much more challenging there versus at the corporate side. Right. Even though I've only been there for a month, I feel like I could write an entire book on it. The amount of stuff I've seen that go on. Right. Well. Um, one thing I will say, it was clean. The place was a clean place. So they, they kept it clean, but, but in terms of like, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go into that another time. I don't want to get that on camera. There's a lot there right. There's behind the scenes. I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it all. Um, yeah, I've seen, there's tons of great stories out of these hotels, hotels go. and restaurants. There's always good stories about what's happening behind the scenes, right? There we go. A anything you could share or that's, that's, uh, I'd probably save it for another time. So maybe go, next yeah. time I see you, we're having to drink together. I'll, I'll tell you some All stories. Right, there, we, there we go. There we go. I was in Atlanta once. I actually liked it a lot. Um, I went as a, I went as a kid. Um, apparently that was only a year ago. So, um, so yeah, um, right. Was, I'm just nothing. I'm, so anyway, anyways, the hotel, like people's, the restaurant business is brutal, right? There's only one yep. worse hotels, right? Um, so at the end of the day, you're running an operation that's like, how? Like, I mean, it's so like, especially when you're getting this big, um, certain, you know, in terms of like the personal type of, and you, you seem to be keeping it like how, like how, how does that, you know? Like, how do you keep just keep it personalized or how do you keep, or what's your question, I guess? Sorry. Um, so when you get so many hotel properties, right, you're going to get a lot of managers. You're going to get so many more employees. Um, yep. How do you keep it that you, you actually like actually know what's going on in each property? Like, especially like companies that are really big, they don't actually know what's yep. going on. Like, you know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, I know, so it's one of those, it's a great question. So we constantly, because you don't want to be in meetings all day, because, you know, I could easily be in a meeting pretty much every Nobody hour on the hour and trying to figure out exactly what's happening across the board. And, and you can't, you know, to be like at our size and trying to scale up our company, you can't be in a scalable type organization and really be effective by micromanaging every, you know, little situation that's occurring. But what we do is we constantly have like these, you know, every two weeks we have asset management meetings where we go through all the assets and usually that'll last a couple of hours where I can hear about, you know, what's happening with, with each investment. Um, and then, you know, during the week I'm constantly getting, you know, anytime there's complaints or anytime that there's uh, issues that occur at different properties, like if there's a, a property that ends up catching on fire for some reason or, you know, rooms are you know, put out of order for different reasons. I get notified and uh, we have, you know, that information flows across the organization to, you know, beyond myself to a lot of other, you know, team members that need to know what's happening to keep everyone on the same page. And uh, so, you know, ultimately, although if there is an issue happening at a property, 
um, assuming it's a pretty material issue, then I will definitely know about it. And, and then, you know, I find out about the, you know, the smaller issues, you know, when it starts to, you know, become more of a, you know, more of a impact to the performance of the hotel. Right. Um, one thing I did notice, um, I mean, I'm not, you know, actually seeing the actual management of it, but again, that's why you had, you hire certain people because they don't have to tell you, they, you just like take care of it. Right. And yep. you have confidence in them to take care of it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. You got to trust. And that's going back to your, you know, other part about, you know, you know, sort of managing and mitigating turnover is you really got to trust your team. And, and I think, you know, if you ask, you know, the different um, team members here, like at our corporate office, and hopefully even the team members at our property level, I think they would all say that, you know, there's a huge amount of trust that, you know, that everyone has amongst each other. And that's, I'm a big believer, you got to trust each other and trust everyone has good intentions and everyone's doing everything that they can. And, uh, and when you start to not have that trust, that's where, you know, a lot of times I see companies sort of fall apart because they're not trusting the different team members and they're all of a sudden they're trying to micromanage processes or they're trying to duplicate what's happening. And it just, you know, it becomes very inefficient extremely quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, companies don't grow the way you're growing without that community, especially communication level and that trust level. It just, it just doesn't. At, at the end of the day, the bottom line is you're not going to see the numbers grow if you can't communicate with each other. Um, so yep. you guys are growing 35% revenue. It's insane. That's, that's incredible. Um, one thing I didn't, I didn't notice is that a lot of your, a lot of your hotel properties are limited service, right? Yep. A lot, a lot of them are limited and select service hotels. Right. Yep. So the hotel that I did work at, um, they were full service that, you know, to me, it was a three-star hotel. They thought they were a four-star hotel, which I think is right. a problem in and of itself. They, they had people in there that, I mean, I, I'll tell you later, it, it just, this hotel is like in the middle of nowhere and it's nothing special, but you had people in there like are knowable people, like business people, celebrity type people. I'm like, what are they doing here? And like, they were staying at this hotel and they simply, they were losing a ton of money on the food, especially is Food across the board always like a, like you're gonna lose money on food regardless. You're you're not always gonna lose money, but it's a very it's a very tough business. I right. would say you have a higher you know higher degree of losing money than making money with the food business. Right. Um. Right. You know, if you've got more of the beverage side, that's where a lot of times you can make it back up. But it's uh, but it's one of those where we try to focus on hotels that have less than you know twenty percent of their revenues coming from the F and B side. So we right, usually right. want hotels where, you know, again, at least 75 to 80% of the revenues are flowing from the, um, from the hotel side. And hence we like these Hampton Inns, you know, Hilton Garden Inns, Marriott ACs, because usually you find that, you know, those hotels, you're really putting heads in beds versus focusing on trying to sell um, some type of expensive steak dinner or whatever the case is. Right. And you know, ultimately that's where, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of leakage in the F and B side of the business and it's harder, you know, it's harder to manage that type of business, you know, effectively and as efficiently as you can on the, the room side. Right. It's hard enough yeah. to, to it. You got to add a restaurant to it as well, you know? Um, yeah, ex exactly. Um, Hampton, I see you guys have a lot of Hampton Inns. My, my dad in particular is a huge Hampton Inn fan. Um, just to give you a little bit of a background, this is a guy that, when he was, when he first, he originally was in New Jersey, came down to Florida um, and he stayed in this, they just stayed in one random hotel 
And long story short, he asked his friend who was with him, hey, can you turn on the AC in the room? He went over to the AC and he tried turning it on. The thing fell out of the wall. The thing fell out of the window and crashed down. He said, never in my life will I ever stay in a dumpy hotel, you know, again. So like, right. throughout his like business career, he, like if he stayed at Hilton was like, like nothing lower, like nothing lower than Hilton. Like Hilton, right. it's Carlton type. He loves uh, Hampton. I also feel like even though Hampton Inn technically is in that certain like niche, it has a high, in my opinion, has a higher perceived value than others. Cause like if someone's charging, let's say a hundred, they're charging 150. Someone charging 150, they're charging 200. Is that, it, I feel like you make more profit on it because technically the same level, you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of the cost. Huh? Yeah. So you, you're able to drive your average daily rates usually at Hampton Inns, you know, for instance. So your, your rate, you know, when you look at like a Hampton Inn compared to its competitive set, which is usually more like a Comfort Inn, Holiday Inn Express, Fairfield Inn, um, you know, Country Inn and Suites, you know, those are the brands that usually, you know, La Quinta, you're competing against those brands on a daily basis. You know, Hampton Inn has a huge um, following, you know, amongst, you know, hotel guests and consumers. And so you find that you're able to, you know, in most cases run higher occupancy levels compared to the, you know, competitive properties or at least run the same, you know, occupancy levels or maybe higher. And then you're able to drive more rate because people, there is a higher preference towards staying at a Hampton Inn than some of the you know, competitors. Although, you know, some of the other competitors, we own those brands as well, and they do extremely well as well. But uh, Hampton by far is, uh, you know, is favored by most consumers and, and ultimately compared, you know, like when you look at a Hampton Inn compared to like a, you know, a full service Hilton, in a lot of cases, you know, your rate differential isn't as great as you would expect. And, you know, that full service Hilton is going to offer, you know, it's going to have to have F&B service. So it's going to have to have a lot of staffing, right. you know, 24 right. seven, maybe at the hotel, if it's offering, you know, 24 seven service or at least, you know, a good, you know, 12 to 18 hours a day, it's going to have, you know, F&B staffing, it's going to have a lot of staffing required at the front desk, you know, at the, um, you know, at the valet side, potentially, depending on you know, if they're valeting cars and so forth, and then housekeeping. And so you just have a lot more expense and a lot more square footage that you're responsible for overseeing at a full service hotel versus, a, you know, like a limited service Hampton Inn type hotel. And because you have less labor, and you have less, um, you know, you have very little F and B requirements and so forth. You're able to, you know, drive a lot more profitability, you know, at a, you know, at a Hampton Inn versus a full service Hilton. Like a typical, you know, Hampton Inn is going to drive a gross op operating profit margin of like, call it somewhere in the mid 40s to 50 percent range. Really? A, wow. Yeah. For, and that's you know you gross operating profit. Um, before you know, looking at your debt expense and so forth, and your um, you know property taxes, insurance, and um, you know management fees and and uh, insurance, but uh, like, are you netting out like thirty percent? Like, yeah. So in most wow. cases, you're gonna you know net somewhere around thirty percent. You know, wow. you're probably in the low to mid thirties before, um, or maybe a little bit less depending on the deal. But um, you know, before you look at you know your actual debt service, but you end up making really good returns on most. On most Hampton Inns, you know, versus like a full service hotel, you can still make good returns, but your flow through is going to be impacted by probably, you know, 10 or 15 points. So depending on what kind of, you know, rates you're getting. Um, so your, you know, gross operating profit margin is going to be a lot less than what you're going to see at a Hampton. Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I just noticed it personally. It's like, you know, anytime, like, especially let's say I came back from, I came back from college. I was driving from Chicago, went to college in Chicago and I live in Florida. 
So my dad actually flew up and we actually um, drove down from Chicago to Florida. And we figured we're just going to stop anywhere. It doesn't matter. My dad's like, just look for the nearest Hampton Inn. Look for the right. nearest Hampton Because, um, you know, they got clean sheets, uh, breakfast in the morning, everything's great. Um, so I noticed like, yeah, Hampton Inn, it was, let's say like 130 bucks a night, whatever. And I just like steadily over time, that 130 is now 190, you know? And I see like a Hilton at like 230. So you're like, so I'm like, something's here. Something's definitely like, obviously, as you mentioned, people prefer Hampton Inns. Um, have you ever thought about getting to a luxury market to do like a Ritz Carlton type or like really high end? Cause yes, it's going to cost you a lot, but you charge a lot and like yeah. the margins is insane. Um, any thought process in that or, or are you just going to stick to this, you know? Yeah, we're probably going to stick to the select service, you know, limited service, maybe some smaller full service hotels, but it's, it is uh, always say the, the luxury hotels. I love staying at those properties and you can make a lot of money. Usually the group that makes all the money is the second or third owner of those properties because it costs a lot of money to build those assets to begin with sure. or develop those assets. And then the other factor I always say it's a, you know, like when you look at owning a Hampton Inn, everyone's focused on IRR, you know, from a standpoint of their returns. Um, or they're, you know, focused on cash flows and so forth. Whereas when you're owning a Ritz Carlton, I always call it an ROE, you know, return on the ego. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all about, you know, that, that, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't, you know, a lot of times it doesn't make as much financial sense as you would expect, right. but usually those assets trade at super, super low cap rates compared to, you know, what sure. you'll see on the select service hotels, for sure. which is, uh, you know, which is sort of going back to that, you know, ego side of the business. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, no, no, hundred percent. I feel like if you're going to do luxury, then you probably have to just build it yourself, right? There's just no other way. Too expensive. Yeah. It's very expensive. And it's, if you're going to do luxury, I would recommend not, uh, you know, not developing them, but finding, buying them in this kind of environment today. Like if you're going to go do luxury hotels, right. this is the, right. probably one of the best times to potentially do it depending on what sub markets you're looking at, just because, you know, everyone's been disrupted and, it's very, very expensive to carry a luxury hotel compared to, yeah. you know, limited or select service hotel. Sure. And so a lot of those groups are just bleeding cash right now. And so they're willing to you know, sell properties at, you know, huge yeah. discounts. I know one huge, very notable property that I won't name. I'll tell you later about it. And they like, I don't know how they're going to survive. It's like it, there is no way of touching this hotel unless there is a pandemic period. Nobody's right. selling this hotel unless... Are there any, like, you probably can't tell me, but like, are there any deals on the horizon? Like, like you're actually looking at now or like if literally like a Ritz Carlton came to your desk and you look at it, would you actually, if it made sense, you'd pull the trigger or. I mean, if it, if it made economic sense, I mean, we're opportunistic. So absolutely we would pull the trigger if it did for us. Uh, but it's not a, it's not a primary focus for us. So it would have to be uh, I mean, again, it would have to be a super compelling transaction that would have to make a lot of economic sense for us to do it but you know with that said we are looking at a lot of you know we're going through probably we probably have 30 or 40 different um active deals that we're underwriting as we speak right now from the wow. standpoint of wow. us either acquiring the property or us acquiring the the debt on the hotel because we're talking to a lot of lenders about buying you know debt positions on different hotel assets as well um so we're very active on the you know the investment side right now right so if you're buying the debt though and your primary goal is not actually to foreclose on it you're going a period where you're not getting paid right or yeah 
Yeah, so you, I mean, usually, especially in today's environment, you know, you may have to, you know, go just given, you know, the disruption of cash flows. In a lot of cases, borrowers, um, you know, can't make, you know, their payments. So if you're buying a debt piece, a lot of the loans we're looking at, you know, borrowers are um, in these debt deferment periods. And so there would be a period of time where we'd have no, you know, cash flow coming in as the buyer of the, the loan. And, and even if we took the property back and bought the property, you know, we're in the same boat as well because there's no cash flows coming in at the property level as yeah. well. So, well, it's, the, you own uh, real estate, though. You own the real estate. You own the real estate, but it's uh, but now you have all the carrying costs of real estate, right? So sure. in a lot of cases, you're still, um, it's one of those things you just sort of got to balance out and you know look at and see what makes the most sense. But ultimately, I'd rather be just you know today I'd rather be just a lender versus being you know last dollar equity on most right. projects, just right. given the the carrying costs associated with the you know the assets. Uh, but at some point in the near future, you know, cash flows are going to return and we're starting to see in a lot of markets, you know, we've seen over the last you know, 60 days a tick up of occupancy, um, although it's starting to stabilize out across our portfolio, at least, you know, we're running about 50% occupancy, but oh, really? we're, we are running, you know, at an occupancy level that covers, um, you know, it covers all the operating costs and covers a decent amount of the, um, you know, interest carry for a lot of the deals that we're invested in. But when you were doing CNBC, you were at like 15, 20%. Now you're at 50%. That's, yep. that's a big deal. Yeah. So we've, we've been very, very fortunate because it's, uh, it is, um, it's been a very slow recovery, but um, although it's been very, from where we were back towards the, uh, you know, back when you look at March and April, yeah. um, compared to where we are today, I mean, back in April, we were running, yeah. you know, 15% and 15% occupancy levels. And to get to where we are today, um, at 50%, you know, by no means are we, um, you know, we are happy based on where we were, but I mean, this know, is the survival should, mode, survival mode. Whoever. Exactly. Like normally we'd probably be closer to 80%, you know, sure. today. So we're, you know, we're still down 30 occupancy points, not to mention, you know, we're still impacted on the, the rate side as well because the business that's out there today, unfortunately, a lot of it's, um, you know, is somewhat rate sensitive. Um, so you're having to, you know, deal with that piece of it as well so right i'm gonna actually ask you about expedia um i found i couldn't believe this when i heard this i'm sure you probably know about it more than i do um when someone books that say i mean not just expedia expedia owns basically everything essentially i don't know how that's not a monopoly anyways um but um they essentially um so when someone books through one of those sites right you get charged a fee right to use their service whatever it is right yep um, so they, they don't need to actually make a deposit. They just put a card number on it. It could be a debit card with like $2 on it and they can actually make um, a, a reservation. So fine. When the reservation comes, they, they don't show up. Um, they still charge you the fee of, you know, let's say they book for a week, $1,000 and it's 15%. They charge you 150 bucks, um, but you didn't get any money in return. So apparently um, a lot of hotel, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys take care of this because you guys are, you guys know what you're doing. A lot of hotels get screwed. Like I, like, um, I can't believe like that's a, that's a, is that a thing? Is that really a thing or? Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it. I mean, that's something that, you know, Patrick short and, uh, and his, you know, Vicky who runs our revenue management, you know, they deal with that issue and Patrick short runs our you know, property management company. I mean, he's constantly dealing with probably that issue and it's, it always comes up, you know, probably the, the bigger piece is, um, 
is, I mean, you're doing like the issue you just mentioned, you know, it, it is an issue, but the, you know, the bigger issue is we're paying franchise fees and then we got to pay, you know, yeah. you, their fee on top of it. And so yeah. it dilutes, yeah. although we're charging in most cases, unless it's coming from one of the opaque channels, you know, we're charging the same rates on Expedia as we are if you book through Marriott or Hilton.com. Right. And, uh, but we're losing, you know, 15%, you know, 10 to 15% because of the Expedia fee. Um, we're losing, you know, 10 to 15% off the top. Plus we still have to pay the franchise fees, no matter if it comes from Expedia or, you know, Marriott.com. Right. So right. it's, uh, it's sort of uh, a negative impact, but I mean, it's, it is, uh, the, you know, the OTAs, the online travel agencies that I call them, you know, they're sort of a necessary evil when you look at the Expedia's of the world because they do drive business into our hotels. And candidly, like in today's environment, that's the majority of the business that's coming. I say the majority, that's a big chunk of the business coming in our hotels. And, you know, I think the OTA business has probably doubled, you know, through the pandemic, just given the fact that, you know, the traditional traveler, you know, the traditional corporate traveler that books through, you know, brand.com, if it's Hilton or Marriott or Intercontinental's website, a lot of those guests just don't exist today. And you have this different you know, set of guests that's traveling for more leisure driven reasons and they're using Expedia or some other OTA. Right. Um, what percentage of revenue comes from like business, like the bit, like people like that come, like people come once a week or, you know, on business or whatever. That's just, that's just direct between you and the hotel, uh, between you and the customer, essentially. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of the business comes, it's just between us and the, um, the customer where they book, um, in a lot of cases that we have corporate accounts set up with them where they just call, you know, to the hotel and book direct. In other cases, you know, some of them may just be booking through the, you know, the website, um, or through, you know, the brand.com website and, and, uh, but in either case, that's direct, you know, effectively it's direct with us um, versus like, you know, Expedia, we are inheriting you know, that guess and whatever, you know, expectations that Expedia or whoever's sort of set for their stay. Right. But let's say hypothetically, I know Expedia is probably a big part of your business, but if you didn't get Expedia, let's say, would you ever consider maybe just advertising, like spending all that money on just straight up advertising on Google and like bypassing Expedia or something? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that you could look at. I think it's tough to do just given the fact that the costs of, I think when you look at the way the costs of advertising and doing more on Google or whatever the case is, um, it becomes ineffective, you know, like where you're not going to, um, you know, if, you, if Vicky was here who's heads up revenue management, she could probably tell you exactly the numbers because they're constantly looking at, you know, buying Google um you know, ads and things like that, but it's, it becomes sort of ineffective from a financial perspective where you're almost better off having an Expedia that's a known entity, unfortunately, that can you know, help you know, right. drive right. that business. Because you're also using money that someone else gave you to pay Expedia versus actually taking it out immediately, which affects your overall equity in the business. So I guess yep. you're right. Also, um, just to, just to finish off, when you when you run hotel business, it's not just about the hotel business. You buy the asset, right? One thing that's very interesting is in retail, even the big guys don't buy the asset. And I've actually had this. I've been very against renting forever. Like I've actually spoken to a couple of CEOs of like publicly traded, really big brand names in retail. And you know, I ask, I don't understand. Like if you just bought the, for example, um, um, Barney's, right? Barney's in New York. 
They did, I kid you not, one location did $1 billion in revenue. And they left because they're like, it's not worth paying rent. They were paying right. $20 million a month. And then the landlord essentially is like, yeah, Barney's in New York. They, they're not going to go anywhere. Let's just jack up the rent to whatever we want. And they're going to stay. They jacked them up to 37, $37 million a month. And wow. Barney's, again, did one, $1 billion at one location. Can you imagine if your hotel did $1 billion and it's not worth right. operating? Like any business, yeah. it's not worth operating. If I, I don't understand it. Do you have anything to say about that? I, I just don't. In the hotel business, it, nobody, nobody rents a hotel and then operates it, right? Or maybe some people do. It's very, very rare. I mean, you see some situations where you've seen these sell leaseback transactions. Like I think MGM did a large sell leaseback type transaction with a lot of their assets with, I think with Blackstone, if I'm not mistaken. But in most cases, you know, when you look at smaller select service, limited service type hotels, usually the operator, um, although there may be a third party operation company running the hotel for an ownership right. group, in most cases, the, um, you know, the owner of the asset is, uh, you know, they, they control the operations and they own the actual, you know, land building and FF&E as well. Right. I, I, I just, something I never understood. Like, and you guys also are like very, it's not, it is different obviously, but it's similar. You're in a, you're, it's a service centric business. Um, but yeah, um, this was incredible. No, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to say or anything like that? By the, by the way, um, which was better, being on CNBC or being on Max and TV? I already know it's a rhetorical question. I mean, yeah, no, being on Max's TV. I mean, this is uh, it's a lot better. It's a better format too, so you get more time and and you know this is great what the setup you have and really you know really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. So this is oh, very, very cool. So thank absolutely, you for absolutely. Yeah, we're we're very chilled here. We're very chilled here. We like, but we talk business. I like that. We talk talking real business, but we like to be relaxed about it. Anything goes right. on the show. I like it. Yeah. I'm Max. I make the rules. If Rule number two is if you see rule number one. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. oh, fine. I'll, I'll give you the four if you want to say any final things or anything like that. Um, but, um, but, yeah. Yeah. I think just, again, thank you for, for including me. And uh, if there's, you know, anything I can do to you know, help you out in the future, definitely let me know. But it's, uh, you know, the hotel business, I think, as we talked about today, I mean, I think it's, it's going through sort of a tough, you know, it's tough sledding today for the next, at least for the next six to nine months. But, you know, I think when you look out in the future, um, the hotel business has much, you know, better days ahead. And we're probably going to, when you look out in 36 months, I think we'll exceed the levels that we were, you know, back in 2019. So I think there's, there's going to be much better days ahead. So it's uh, right. unfortunate right. that we're having to deal with this COVID disruption, but there's a lot of, it, every time there's a crisis, there's always, you know, good things that come from it as well. Yeah, no, 100%. If anyone knows how to get through a crisis, it's you. You started the business from a crisis, technically. Right. You know? Yep. Um, no, again, uh, I'm, I really appreciate you being on. Um, and this was great. I had a lot of fun. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. And see you soon. And don't forget to like and subscribe.